This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 344th episode, we have a bunch of news, including baby dinosaurs in the Arctic. Wow. It was a special request from Sabrina. Sure was. We also have an interview with Nizar Ibrahim with his thoughts on the latest Spinosaurus papers. Nice. You were there for it. I know. <laughs> it's a good conversation. <laughs> and we have Dinosaur of the Day, Iguana Colossus as well as a fun fact by Sabrina, and I have no idea what it's going to be. It's going to be a surprise to me. Oh, should have taken the opportunity to quiz you. You should have. Next time. <laughs> but before we get into all of that, as always, we like to thank some of our patrons because they are the people keeping the podcast running. And this week, we'd like to thank John Heck, Diplodicate, Cameron, Kelly, Ayrton and Everett, Stego Sophie, Ewan, Jurassic Jim, Bill Jago, and Robert. Yes, thank you so much to you, our patrons, and everybody else in our community. We could not do this show without you. And if you want to join our growing community of dinosaur enthusiasts, we recently had an interesting discussion on what else we could call ourselves. <laughs> then, <laughs> oh, yeah. On Discord. Uh, then check out our page at patreon.com slash inodino. Before we get into the news... Got a quick correction from a listener from Beijing who's a Chinese native about Juchung Tyrannus. We had said that the fossil was at the Juchung Dinosaur Museum. It's not anymore. It's now at the much newer Juchung China Tyrannosaurus Museum. Yeah, I love that it has Tyrannosaurus as a Tyrannosaurus Museum, getting real specific. Yeah. So thank you for letting us know. There are a ton of new dinosaur museums in China all the time. I wonder how many of our other dinosaurs where we mentioned where they were have been relocated as everything constantly gets built over there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and now on to our story about the baby dinosaurs, as promised. Yes. It's actually an update from a story we talked about a little while ago. We talked about it way back in 2019 from the 2019 SVP at Brisbane. And they showed a picture of 10 teeth and bones that easily fit on a single U.S. penny, <laughs> which I think they said is 19 millimeters. And then in the paper, they updated that to 19.05 millimeters in diameter. So, yes, a very small coin for all of those dinosaur bones. And I'll share a picture of that on our Discord. So if you're a patron, definitely go check that out. But... As you might guess, these are very, very young dinosaurs, possibly unhatched. Technically, they're perinates, which means just before or after hatching, but I'm just going to call them babies because perinates, come on, babies. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So the dinosaurs lived near the poles, but in this case, specifically the North Pole. They were found in the Prince Creek Formation, also known as PCF, which was at the time about 82 degrees north latitude in the late Cretaceous. But now it's Alaska. It was Alaska back then, too. I mean, it was still the same land mass. Oh, okay. But, but now it's known as Alaska. Yes, now it's known as Alaska. And it's shifted farther south as well. So now it's about 70 degrees, whereas it was 82 degrees there. But it's still inside the Arctic Circle. Not quite as far to the pole, but still very far north. And it's obviously in northern Alaska, not the part of Alaska where most people live, which is much farther south. This is some pretty remote territory. I think you can basically only go there for a few months out of the year when things aren't completely frozen over and impassable. But not these dinosaurs. No. And back then, it also wasn't that cold. So the mean annual temperature back then was about 6 degrees Celsius or 43 Fahrenheit, which means it wasn't permafrost, right? Because it's above freezing on average. But it did likely reach negative 10 Celsius or 14 degrees Fahrenheit in the winter. Still cold. Yeah. That's not, that's not comfortable, especially if you don't have a house to keep it warm. Hmm. It also probably snowed at least occasionally. Not surprising if it's <laughs> that far below freezing. I should also mention, I think I skipped who wrote this article. It was Patrick Druckenmiller, Gregory Erickson, Donald Brinkman, Kayla Brown, and Jalen Eberly. Apparently, Patrick and Gregory have been working there for some decades. And then we've also interviewed Kayla Brown before, but I don't think we talked to him about anything Arctic. And this was published in Current Biology. So there's a lot more detail in this paper, obviously, than there was in the SVP presentation. That tends to happen. Yes. Two more years worth of working on it. Although, since it was published in Current Biology, it's actually a pretty brief article, which is kind of nice. And a lot of pictures. They include a graphical abstract, which is always nice. Hmm. So now we know that there are at least seven groups of non-avian dinosaurs represented by both tiny teeth and mature teeth which means that we know of seven groups that were there as adults, basically, and as babies. Nice. In total, there's a troodontid, a dromaeosaurid, specifically something in Saurornithalestinae, an ornithopod, probably in Thessalosauridae, a ceratopsid, probably in Leptoceratopsidae, a hadrosaurid, possibly Ugrunalic, a ceratopsid, possibly Pachyrhinosaurus, and a Tyrannosaurid, possibly Nanooksaurus. That's interesting. I thought there was a paper that Ugrinolic might not be a valid species. Yeah, so I mean, it would still be some Hadrosaurid. You know, you could, if you don't believe Ugrinolic counts as its own genus, then you could expand that out to whatever group it's in. Mm. But since we're more talking about like the behavior, the specific individual species isn't super important here other than to show the diversity of because that's a lot of different groups some are really big some are really small oh, you've yeah. got big herbivores small herbivores big carnivores small carnivores yeah and they're all living there year round presumably because you've got both the very young and the older ones in a pretty complete looking ecosystem there so they just chose to live in this cold environment that was probably dark for a lot of the year well, yeah, but I, I think it's probably, you would assume that it might be like humans where we started out in a warmer area mm -hmm. and then we sort of just spread out because eventually there aren't enough resources for the number that of humans that there are. So you have to move out a little bit. Same thing with dinosaurs. 
as they're spreading out. You know, everybody wants their own space. Right. You're going to try to eat all the food if there's food and you, you just do it a little bit at a time, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so over the course of millions of years, some of them end up making it to the poles, but they don't really start out there. True. Although in some cases they might too, because there's that theory that maybe the birds that survived the KPG boundary might have been polar dinosaurs that then evolved and made their way back towards the equator. So I guess it could go either way. Technically speaking, there is an eighth group of baby dinosaur that was found there, but it's in AVLA. So obviously they didn't find any teeth because birds by this point didn't have teeth. They only found tiny bones, but technically if you want to be complete there are eight groups of dinosaurs known from pcf each example has a pinhead scale tooth (laughs) along with the adult size tooth so they literally have a tooth and then they have a picture of a pin below it (laughs) so it's like one or two millimeters across basically to give you baby teeth give you an idea of how small they are they are so tiny and they talked about it during the svp presentation but basically they were sifting for these really really tiny fossils that requires a good eye yeah but they did end up finding enough adult fossils as well that we know the adults were living there as well as the babies which makes sense because otherwise you know Babies have to come from somewhere. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There were three groups that they found only adult specimens from, but not babies. And that's Pachycephalosauridae, Ornithomimidae, and Tyrannosauridae. And the reason I include Tyrannosauridae both places is just to point out that the fossils are believed to be from an under one-year-old or what they call a yearling. So depending on how you look at it, you could say that's perinatal. Probably not, though. It's really more of like a just super young, I guess, what would be a toddler to humans (laughs) (laughs) dinosaur. And all of those dinosaurs, the troodontid, dromaeosaurid, ornithopod, ceratopsid, hadrosaurid, and ceratopsid are all about the size of a pigeon, the babies. They were all very small, which makes sense because those eggs are sort of like pigeon-sized, I would say. Yeah. And some of these might not have hatched. Some of them might have just barely hatched. But the tyrannosaurid is more like the size of a turkey. (laughs) Because <laughs> it had some time to grow. A little bit, yeah. So maybe in the roughly one meter long sort of range. There were also a few groups that they couldn't find any evidence of either as babies or adults in the Prince Creek Formation, but they are in other polar formations, and that's Ankylosauridae, Notosauridae, Cenonathidae, and Alvarosauridae. That's so many types of dinosaurs. There are a lot of types of dinosaurs, yeah. <laughs> but those, all of those can be found in the polar climate. So it's like pretty much all the dinosaurs. Yeah, they all <laughs> made it to the Arctic. Yeah, I mean, at least at the latest Cretaceous, those were the pretty much the major dinosaur groups. And there's also, I said Hadrosauridae, but they have found both Sauralophenes and Lambiosaurines up there, so... Or down there, because <laughs> it counts in both. High latitude means both near the North Pole and the South Pole, mm-hmm. even though now we're talking about the North Pole. The craziest thing, though, is that since the Prince Creek Formation back in the late Cretaceous, and this is like Maastrichtian Campanian, so like 70 million years ago-ish, so it's quite late in the Cretaceous. Back then, it was about 82 degrees north, only 8 degrees from the North Pole. That means that it really got dark and stayed light for very long periods of time in the winter and the summer on Mm -hmm. the light side. They estimate that when these dinosaurs were alive, they would have gone 120 days in the winter without seeing the sun. Oh, that sounds awful. (laughs) So basically from about mid-October to mid-February, 
there'd be absolutely no sunlight. And then on either end of that, there's a period where you're only getting about 15 minutes of the sun barely cresting the horizon. I wonder if non-avian dinosaurs ever got depressed. I mean, if they ever did, this would be the place to find them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but more importantly than them being depressed or just the unpleasantness of being in the dark is that there are a lot of herbivores living there and herbivores need to eat plants and plants need sunlight to live. So they might have had to go long stretches with very limited foraging <laughs> options. As I'm wondering, you know, how did they get there? Why did they stay there? <laughs> I mean, like, there's a lot of competition. Yeah. The whole earth is covered in dinosaurs. Some of them are going to make their way up there eventually. <laughs> it's also possible that because it was such a weird environment, these dinosaurs might have had specific adaptations, either physically or at least behaviorally, to mm -hmm. deal with it. So it might not have felt like a huge problem for them. It might have just been business as usual. Because even though you have the four-month period where it's pitch black, that means you also have four-month period where it's bright all the time mm -hmm. without any sunset. And there could be some advantages there. Maybe they grew like crazy and were just super active during the summer. And then during the winter really went into slow mode and didn't do as much. Hibernated, maybe. Yeah, so the authors don't think they would have hibernated, but they might have gone into a state of torpor, which is something that some birds do. It's Torpor is weird. It's sort of like a broader category that includes hibernation. Hibernation is like an extreme torpor, I guess, or a really long torpor. But torpor is when you drop your body temperature and sort of your overall energy use way down. Humans can't do it, but some birds can. Like there's a hummingbird that's famous for it. Because hummingbirds use a ton of energy when they're awake flying around. Mm -hmm. But if they go into torpor, they can cut down and then actually get some sleep, I guess. <laughs> But yeah, some dinosaurs or birds do torpor on a daily basis. And then there are animals like, I guess, bears would count when they're hibernating would be like a month or multiple month long torpor. Another interesting thing they put together was an estimate on what their behavior would have been like on sort of an annual cycle. So like when they would have hatched new young and when they would have formed nests and all that kind of stuff. Basically what they think is that the dinosaurs would have wanted to incubate the eggs in the constant sunshine, mm -hmm. presumably for the temperature. And that might be partly because, especially the hadrosaurids, we don't know if they sat on the nests. So if they buried them or did something else where they relied on the environment to keep the eggs warm, you probably wouldn't want to do that when it's negative 10 degrees outside. That's going to be a problem. So what they think is that basically, so you've got that pitch black from mid-October to mid-February, then mid-February or early March, they start building nests and laying eggs. And then basically they start incubating their eggs in April. And depending on the dinosaur, it depends how much time that baby dinosaur has before the, their first winter mm. happens. So hopefully they have a short incubation period so they have enough time, as much time as possible to eat a bunch of food. Exactly. Yeah, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of data from the Prince Creek Formation, enough to know how long they might have incubated, but we have some similar analogs. So like we have all those protoceratops eggs. So we know that the group of dinosaurs that includes Leptoceratopsidae, which is one of the dinosaur teeth that we found, probably took about two and a half months to hatch. So that's not so bad. It would have hatched right around the summer solstice, if the author's timing guesses are right. And then they would have had a few months to eat and grow and be happy <laughs> in the sun. Before they understood what winter was. Exactly. Before that super long, constant winter. 
Unfortunately, though, our best guess for the hadrosaurid that lived there is that it takes nearly six months for it to hatch. Oh. And six months is how long the summer lasts. So maybe it's born in darkness. Well, they think it probably hatched like just a little bit before and it would have had like a couple weeks or maybe a month before it got its first, you know, long darkness. But that seems so difficult because what are they going to eat? They really would have, it seems, yeah, I don't mm -hmm. know. That's a that's crazy that they would do that. And this is also all guessing too. So I, it makes me wonder if maybe the hadrosaurid parents might have started making a nest a month or two earlier to try to skew that on the earlier side. But we really just have no way of knowing. It's not the case that all birds or all dinosaurs would have definitely laid eggs in the springtime too. Because for example, emperor penguins, I had to look this up because I was like, that's a dinosaur that lives in a polar region. Mm -hmm. What do they do? They lay their eggs, I think it's in May on average, which is like right in the beginning of the winter in the Southern hemisphere. Mm -hmm. Isn't it they also eat as much as they can so they can survive that whole winter keeping that egg warm. Yeah, they don't and but modern birds also have a much shorter incubation period than even the leptoceratopsid because most birds are in the order of like weeks to like a month or maybe two on the long end. I don't think any of them really get up into the certainly not into the 6 month range. But yeah, they have all sorts of interesting strategies, the emperor penguins, to deal with <laughs> hatching an egg in such harsh conditions, including the male is the one that incubates the egg the whole time. They actually keep food in their crop the whole time they're waiting there for the chick to hatch, and then they feed them like several week old mm, food. The emperor penguin? Yes. Mm -hmm. And then the mom penguin comes back and feeds the baby some more. In the... I've seen March of the Penguins. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'd forgotten that. I had to look it up. And I didn't realize that, wow, it's kind of gross that they keep that food in their crop for so long. It's like a first <laughs> meal for that baby. But It's easy for the baby to digest. Yeah, I suppose. It's probably pretty thoroughly, I don't know, decomposed at that point. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, back to the Prince Creek Formation. So one of the big questions for the Prince Creek Formation and polar dinosaurs in general is whether or not the animals would have stayed there year round or whether they would have left and migrated because why would herbivores want to stay in the darkness for four months? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I remember when they presented this at SVP, a lot of us were thinking before they presented, of course they would migrate because why would you stay in the dark and there's no food and everything? And then it was, well, actually there's all these nests. How could they leave? Yeah, and I think part of that, I, I believe that some of the earlier dinosaurs we found were the larger hadrosaurids and other large herbivores, and presumably it'd be easier for them to cover a lot of ground and migrate and things like that. But for the smaller dinosaurs, it's harder for them to migrate. And on top of that, even the larger dinosaurs, now that we've seen babies there, they would have just barely hatched when it's dark out. So you're not going to make a newly hatched hadrosaurid trek over a thousand kilometers to escape the winter. It just doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. So the authors say, quote, most, if not all, PCF dinosaurs were non-migratory year-round Arctic residents, end quote. And PCF is Prince Creek Formation. Yep. But again, how they managed to survive the winter is still complete speculation. It could have been hibernation, although the authors guess they probably didn't hibernate. I'm, I'm thinking that's probably because most birds don't or all birds don't. There's got to be some weird bird that does. But <laughs> the, 
they did suggest that maybe they went into torpor or the larger dinosaurs may have fasted for most of the winter. Ooh. Going four months without food does seem pretty rough, but I guess if you're big enough, maybe you could pack on some extra fat and survive it. That's a long time. Yeah, it sounds unpleasant. I prefer their other option of foraging, quote unquote, low quality food like bark, ferns, horsetails or moss. Although I was surprised that they included horsetails in there because there was another talk at that SVP where they talked about how horsetails are one of the most nutritious dinosaur foods, presuming that you could digest them properly. So maybe for the smaller dinosaurs, they might not have a big enough gut to digest a horsetail properly. But I mean, if you're not eating anything else, maybe sit in there longer, digest a little more completely. Hmm. And then their last alternative was that they might have stayed in burrows possibly in that state of torpor. And the evidence for that is that there have been possible dinosaur burrows found in Victoria, Australia, which at this time in the Mesozoic was also pretty far towards the pole. So maybe th these polar dinosaurs just hunkered down in little underground caves and waited for the sun to come back out. A lot of animals do it. Yes. It also could be some combination. They could have done that some of the time, come out and eaten some food and then also try to keep their energy consumption low and all that. Unfortunately, they didn't find any evidence of feathers in PCF, although all of the theropod groups that are known from there are known to have feathered relatives elsewhere. So it's probable that at least some of these PCF theropods had feathers. I don't know about the non-theropods though, because there were quite a few non-theropods how did they well. keep warm? Yeah, especially the small ceratopsid leptoceratopsidae group member. That it seems rough. Or the small ornithopod in Thessalosauridae. Those are both really tiny herbivores. Like, man, it's not easy. I could understand the small carnivores, right? They could find little meals here and there, keep hunting. But being a small herbivore in a really cold place seems very difficult. Mm -hmm. Especially a place without sunlight. The fact that there were dinosaurs in PCF year-round is also another good piece of evidence that dinosaurs were endothermic, also known as warm-blooded. Part of this logic comes from the fact that modern polar regions are basically just birds and mammals. <laughs> and, you know, both of our groups are endothermic. And just like today, they haven't found any evidence of lizards or amphibians, which are two of the main ectothermic groups or cold-blooded groups in PCF. They knew to stay away. Yeah, exactly. It's likely that being endothermic was a big advantage in the Prince Creek Formation, just like it is in modern polar climates. And the other animals either couldn't get there or if they did go there, you know, like amphibians rely on water in order to breed. And if the water's super cold, it might not work or the eggs might get frozen or something. Mm-hmm. And their bodies, too. Like, it's just probably not great for them. So that's our update on baby dinosaurs. We got seven groups that went from pigeon-sized up to their adult size, all while living in this crazy four months of complete darkness, followed by four months of complete bright. Yeah. <laughs> that's cool to think about. Yeah. It's nuts. Literally cool. <laughs> <laughs> and up next, I've got another article that Sabrina requested that I read. <laughs> so this one was written by Anne-Marie Pickersgill and others and published in AAAS. And it's all about the which 
specific impact wiped out the non-avian dinosaurs? Or possibly were there two specific impactors that may have been implicated in the non-avian dinosaur murder? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I requested this because I'd never heard of anything other than the Chicxulub. Yeah. So I, I think I might have seen a couple headlines about this back in 2010. That's when the most recent article I could find went really deep into this. But I didn't know it either. I certainly didn't know the name of it. So Chicxulub is the main impactor that everybody talks about. It hit the Gulf of Mexico. It was discovered back in 1978. And it coincided with the Alvarez hypothesis for maybe there was a meteor that wiped out dinosaurs. So it was very fortuitous. But there's another impactor the Boltish impactor, which hit what is now the middle of Ukraine. And it was discovered in 2002, so much more recently. And when it was discovered, we didn't know exactly what the timing was of it. So the first estimates from early samples were pretty broad, and they ranged from like a million years before to a million years after the Chicxulub impactor. Hmm. And then there was another study in 2010, which basically said, okay, we think that they hit right around the same time and possibly the boltish impactor hit like two to 5,000 years, being very precise about it, before the Chicxulub impactor. Ooh, double whammy. Exactly. So there were all these articles like BBC News who said, quote, double meteorite strike caused dinosaur extinction, hmm. end quote. And lots of those, yeah, like double whammy type headlines. And the idea was basically, even though the boltish impact seemed to be smaller, it may have sort of softened things up. It might have made the environment a little more sensitive to a collapse than it would have been if it was just the Chicxulub impactor hitting. Mm -hmm. But for a little bit of comparison, the Chicxulub crater is 150 kilometers or 93 miles in diameter. <laughs> so large. It is crazy huge. The Boltish crater is much smaller, but it is still very big. 24 kilometers or 15 miles in diameter. And the Boltish crater is also much shallower. It's only about half a kilometer or a third of a mile deep versus 10 kilometers or 6.2 miles for the Chicxulub, which is 20 times deeper. Even though it was a much smaller impactor, the Boltish impact was estimated to eject enough material to cover an area the size of Puerto Rico in one meter or 3.3 feet of material. Oh, wow. So it's still a lot of stuff flying out. Mm -hmm. But unlike Chicxulub, it hit land, so it didn't create a massive wave or, a, you know, like a huge tsunami so going a little, everywhere. So a little less destruction. Yeah. Well, at least farther away. You know, it might not have spread out the destruction as much. There's way less research into the Boltish impact, so I can't really make comparisons about what it hit. I don't know what it did in terms of like soot production. I don't know what it did in terms of like raining glass spherules all over the place. Mm -hmm. oh, I'm sure it killed a lot of animals that were in the vicinity. Oh, yeah. There was still definitely a big fireball. Like if you were anywhere, obviously, within that 15 mile radius of the crater, you were a goner. Mm -hmm. And if you were even within a short range around it, for example, right around the rim of the crater, it's like 200 meters or like 600 feet deep of debris. So anything around there was definitely getting buried as it gets pushed out from the crater. So certainly if you were maybe within Ukraine, but actually if you were in the farther parts of Ukraine, you might have been okay back then. But if you were within, say, like even Kiev, I think is like 150 miles away, could be a problem for sure. What is now Ukraine and what is now Kiev? Yes, for sure. 
So jumping ahead to the new study, they found that the Boltish crater actually formed much later than the Chicxulub crater. They used argon radiometric dating, which is probably more accurate than the pollen study that the earlier authors used, although a lot of times they're considered sort of similar level of accuracy. Apparently, the argon dating that they did and the argon samples they got were very good, so it gave better precision. In the end, the Chicxulub impactor hit between 66.02 to 66.06 million years ago, which is why we always just say 66 because very close to 66. Mm -hmm. Whereas the Boltish impactor hit between 65 and a quarter and about 65 and a half million years ago. So in general, the Boltish impactor hit between about a half to three quarters of a million years after the Chicxulub impactor. So anything that might have been recovering from the Chicxulub just got hit again. Yeah, certainly in that region. We don't know exactly how much of an impact it had on the world, but if ecosystems were still recovering from the KPG boundary, then certainly it might have extended those problems, especially because the Deccan traps in India might have still been on the waning side of their eruptions. So that was the other thing. It wasn't just the Chicxulub. Sometimes people say, well, there was also a lot of volcanism happening mm -hmm. in India with the Deccan traps spewing all sorts of sulfur and other gases into the atmosphere. So it could be almost a triple whammy. You got Chicxulub, Deccan traps, and this boltish impact. But fortunately, in terms of timing, we do have plenty of fossils from that half to three quarter of a million year time range, and there are no dinosaurs in it. So we know that it wasn't the Chicxulub impactor harmed the dinosaurs and then the Boltish impactor was the final blow. The Chicxulub impactor certainly was the final blow, the one and only blow necessary to cause the extinction of the non-avian dinosaurs. One final little fun aside about the Boltish impactor, since it hit land shortly after the impact, it became a lake because <laughs> <laughs> it was a crater and it sort of preserved a lacustrine like fossil situation going on and that was partly why they thought it happened before the kpg boundary because some of the pollen that's preserved like in that fossilized lake area seems like it was stuff that went extinct at the kpg boundary at least that's what they were thinking at the time so mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not sure exactly how they got around that it must have just not gone extinct unless it got mixed up with material from other places or something but now there's a ton of sediment that's buried there and it's not a lake anymore it's been covered with earth. So the only way you get these samples is drilling down into it through a bunch of infill. But just for fun, because Sabrina's doing the fun fact, this would normally be my fun fact. <laughs> I see. I can't resist. I wanted to compare sort of the effect on a dinosaur or a person experiencing the boltish impactor versus the Chicxulub impactor, because just like the scale of a crater or like the amount of energy released doesn't really give me a feel for what it would have actually been like to be there. So in general, the Boltish impactor is about 120th the size of the Chicxulub impactor. And I'm using a thousand miles away as my distance for the experience because for one thing, if you are within like 200 miles of the Chicxulub, it might even be more impactor, you're in the fireball. So you can't compare them because it's just like, there's death. not much to compare. Yeah, like instant death versus and then something minor. So a thousand miles away from the crater, and this includes, in case you're curious, if you were in Frankfurt, Zurich, Rome, Santorini, Tripoli, 
or about halfway in between Stockholm and Oslo. Those are all about a thousand miles from this boltish crater. What is now called all of these places. Yes. (laughs) But I mean, if you're living in one of those places, this is what would happen if that impactor happened today at that site. Got it. But for total energy, the Chicxulub impactor released 362 megatons of TNT worth of energy. Oh my gosh. Whereas the Boltish impactor was 362,000 megatons of TNT. And that's because I scaled the impactor using the Impact Earth model, which was made by Imperial College London and Purdue we talked about a while ago. Mm-hmm. And that was the one that gave it roughly the right size crater with like the right depth and size and all that. Plus the authors mentioned that it was like about 120th or some authors mentioned that it was about 120th of the impactor size. And that is at 120th the impactor size. But the amount of energy released isn't 120th, it's 1/1,000th. That results in a fireball for the Chicxulub impactor when you're a thousand miles away, which appears on the horizon to be four times the size of the sun. Oh my gosh. Whereas for the Boltish impactor, you would not see it or feel it. <laughs> yeah, it's much smaller. Yeah. And just for reference, it would take 11 seconds from that impactor to hit for you to see that huge fireball if you're a thousand miles away. And the radiation effects for the Chicxulub impactor, your skin would immediately get third degree burns and all of the trees and the grass around you would burst into flames. Whereas obviously for the Boltish impactor, nothing would happen because there is no fireball Mm -hmm. that you can see. That sounds terrible. Yeah. For earthquakes, the magnitude of the Chicxulub earthquake at the epicenter was over 10, which is larger than any earthquake any human has ever felt. Mm -hmm. Whereas for the Boltish impactor would be about an 8.3. Just still large. It's big, but there's lots of earthquakes that are above 8.3 pretty frequently if you happen to be in some pretty extreme earthquake territory. Mm -hmm. At a thousand miles away for the Chicxulub impactor, that means on the Mercalli scale of intensity, it was about a four or a five, which means that if people were around, most of them would have felt it. And if we were in a house, some of our dishes and windows would break from the earthquake. Whereas for the Boltish impactor, it would be a one or a two on that same scale, which means that it wasn't felt by anybody through felt by a couple people, but like nothing at all really moved much. Would you actually feel the earthquake, though, if it was the Chicxulub? Because you're also getting the third degree burns <laughs> and all this other stuff happening. So I don't know if you would notice the earthquake. I think you would. So I'm doing these in order of when they happen. Mm-hmm. So if you were in a place where the fireball didn't directly hit you, and it didn't light anything on fire around you, like say you're, I don't know, in a boat or something. I, I can't even imagine in a bunker, maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then the fire wouldn't impact you. But the next thing to hit is the earthquake. So this is like five minutes after. If things haven't burst into flames around you from the fireball, okay. then yeah, you would feel the, the earthquake. The next thing that happens is the ejecta reaching you from the impactor, from the Chicxulub impactor. According to that impact earth model, it would be a dust with occasional large chunks, although not in the calculator. We know from other studies, it would also be raining molten glass, also known as spherules. They've been found in several places well over a thousand miles away from the Chicxulub impactor and pretty large, like marble sized chunks of glass raining down, which more or less lights the atmosphere on fire if it's not already on fire from the (laughs) fireball. Because the condensation of that molten glass into solid glass releases a ton of heat. So 
that's not great. Whereas for the boltish impactor, it would be some dust, basically. Hmm. And that hits 11 minutes later. So that's like five minutes, six minutes after the earthquake is felt. The second to last thing that happens is an air blast, you know, the air wave basically from the impactor. For the Chicxulub impactor, it would sound like 102 decibels, even a thousand miles away, which would sound about the same as a jet flying a thousand feet overhead. So you'd hear that noise, but you'd probably feel it a lot more because <laughs> it would blow down 90% of the trees and the rest would have no leaves or branches left. And it would completely destroy most buildings and make most bridges collapse. And all these things would be on fire anyway. Yeah. So this is after the fire. This is a little over an hour later. For the boltish impactor, it would sound like 69 decibels, which is basically the sound that's outside our house all the time since we live near a freeway. And that's less than a thousandth the pressure of the Chicxulub. And the result of that would be that it might shatter some glass windows. Still unpleasant. It's unpleasant, but yeah, not not a huge problem. And then the last thing to hit about 14 hours later is the tsunami, which for Chicxulub would be five to 10 meters in height when you're a thousand miles away, also known as 17 to 33 feet. Whereas for the Boltish Impactor, there is no tsunami because it hit land. If you survive the first hour of the Chicxulub, you have to go far, far away within 14 hours before the tsunami. (laughs) (laughs) It's quite a gauntlet that the Chicxulub impactor throws at you, whereas the Boltish impactor is like, really? I mean, on a local scale, yes, it would be bad and it would cause some disruption. Maybe it would eject a bunch of soot into the atmosphere, which would be felt globally. But really, comparing the two, it's literally one one one-thousandth the scale. Mm -hmm. So I I think it's kind of silly that the Boltish impactor was ever considered like a one-two punch. I see it as... You get knocked down, and as you're getting back up on your feet, you get another punch. But if that second, if that first punch... I see what you're saying. It's much less of a punch. Yeah. Well, assuming you did survive the Chicxulub, all stages of everything that gets thrown at you, the Boltish one doesn't come for another, would you say, 500,000 years later? So yeah. <laughs> any anyone who's around for that would have no recollection of the Chicxulub. Certainly, yeah. Yeah, even like written human history doesn't last even close to 500,000 years, so we would have no recollection of it, let alone dinosaurs, which we don't think could write things down. Mm. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. 
Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. All right. Thanks to our listeners who shared this next one with us. We're going from big, terrible impacts to uh, dinosaur tracks. There's a paper by Philip Havlin and others. It was published in the Proceedings of the Geologists Association, and it's about the youngest dinosaur footprints found in the UK. So the paper said, quote, perhaps more significantly, the footprints at Folkestone, which is where it was found, represent the last documented occurrence in the rock record of non-avian dinosaurs walking on terra firma in the United Kingdom prior to their extinction at the end of the Cretaceous. So, sometime before the chicks loop. (laughs) The footprints were found from at least six different taxa of dinosaurs. They were found in Kent in the UK. They found ankylosaurs, theropods, ornithopods. And it helps to show more diversity in the area. As the paper says, it's moderately diverse. (laughs) But it's got the most important group of dinosaurs, so. The ornithopods? No, the ankylosaurs. <laughs> I had no ankylosaurs at either of my papers. Oh, you're welcome, man. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> There's no sauropods in this one. Yeah, there weren't a ton of sauropods, I, I don't think, in UK at the very end of the <laughs> Cretaceous. So these tracks are 110 million years old. They were found in the cliffs and the foreshore, shore area in Folkestone, Kent. And this area has a lot of erosion from storms and tides. It's the first time that dinosaur tracks have been found in the Folkestone Formation. And before the footprints were found, the type of rocks in the area, it was thought like they couldn't possibly ever have footprints. And these footprints were found with fossil wood and oysters, so it was thought to be in this shallow inland sea area. Mm. Yeah, those are good spots for fossilized tracks. Mm-hmm. The footprints were found back in 2011 by Philip Hadlin, who's the lead author in the paper. Most of them are isolated footprints, but there is one trackway of six footprints. It's probably ornithopod ignis, and it's similar in size to an elephant footprint. Wow. Yeah. The largest footprint, they said, was 80 centimeters wide and 65 centimeters long, and it probably came from something iguanodon-like, an iguanodontopodidae. <laughs> it's always funny hearing the Ichno genus, where they take a dinosaur name and then stick Potidae. Mm-hmm. Or Pez. <laughs> or Podicness was one of those two. Mm-hmm. It's pretty good. It's also funny when they end up being completely wrong and it's got a name that makes it sound like one dinosaur and it's actually from something completely different. Yeah. 
But that's pretty cool. They found these tracks. Yeah. Did they say in there what the ankylosaur tracks were called? No, they talked about ankylosaurian footprints or ankylosaur pez. Ugh. That's no fun. I want it to be ankylosauropodidae <laughs> or ankylosaurichness. <laughs> they have likely ankylosaurian affinity from yeah. a footprint. Yeah. Boring. <laughs> Need more ichnogenus with the ankylosaurs. Mm. Think that might be all my ankylosaur news for the week. Yeah. It's not been a, a, a big ankylosaur news year so far. Yeah, there's still time. Yeah, hopefully. We've got museum news because there's always museum news. In Richmond, Virginia, in the U.S., the Science Museum of Virginia has a new exhibit called Tyrannosaurus Meet the Family. And it's got a lot of theropods, as you can imagine family of them. I think we've heard about this one before. Sounds yeah. familiar. Uh, yeah, but now we know the dates. It's open from now until October 3rd, and they have Scotty the T-Rex. Oh, cool. In Arizona, the L. Allen Crickshank River of Time Museum has a near-life-size drawing of Sonorosaurus on its wall, and that's the state dinosaur of Arizona, so it makes sense. People will be able to see it when the museum reopens in the fall. It takes up an entire wall on a renovated exhibit that shows ancient plants and animals of the Lower Verde River Valley. That makes sense. Sonorosaurus is a sauropod. Those are the kind of dinosaurs that take up a whole wall. Oh, yeah. There you go. I managed to talk about a sauropod. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> so do you want to follow their lead and paint a sauropod on one of our walls, like the wall of our house, maybe? What do you think about that? Put me on the spot. That's what I think about that. <laughs> we could put an ankylosaur on it too, but nobody would be able to see the ankylosaur because the fence would block it. Mm. <laughs> the sauropod everyone would see. Mm -hmm. Things to think about. <laughs> you know, another thing to think about, and thank you to one of our listeners who shared this with us, is in the UK, the Lyme Regis Fossil Festival is happening soon. It's happening on July 10th and 11th, which is a Saturday and Sunday. Nice. Is that for a topic change? Anyway, it's virtual this year. <laughs> on Twitter, it says it's, quote, a natural science and art extravaganza on the incredible Jurassic Coast, only this time it's virtual. And they're going to have live and pre-recorded talks and lectures and virtual field trips. I couldn't find too many other details, but that sounds pretty fun. That does sound fun. So they just announced it on Twitter? Is it going to be also on Twitter? No, I went to their Twitter page to find out more information, but they have a website. So it's one of the typical, like you pay a fee and then you can do the thing? I don't know about that even. That's how I ended up looking on Twitter. It oh, just gotcha. has a countdown. Interesting. So I guess we'll find out in a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I would definitely do a virtual tour of the Jurassic Coast. That sounds fun. Yeah, if anyone knows, maybe it's just you go to the page after the countdown's up and it's there. Could be. Next, we got a quick shout out to our listener, Dino Bo, who was recently featured in an article on Denton Record Chronicle. And Dino Bo is an educator who teaches kids about paleontology. And recently, he found part of a hadrosaur hip while he's driving his kids to the park in Denton, Texas, of a protohadros. Nice. Yeah, and he's found something like 17 bones since November. Wow, that's a lot. I know, it is. And these bones are found further north than they have been in the past. So Dinobo is revealing these fossils at an event on July 31st at Explorium Denton Children's Museum. It's called Dino Reveal, and he'll show all of the fossils that he's found. Cool. In Wales, from August 21st until September 5th, 
Cardiff's Butte Park will have dinosaurs. It's called Jurassic Encounter. It's part of a tour that's going around the UK, and it includes 50 animatronic dinosaurs and other prehistoric animals, including T-Rex, Iguanodon, Deinonychus, Brachiosaurus, Diplodocus. They have some interactive exhibits, like you climb into a dinosaur egg, you can ride <laughs> on a baby triceratops, you can dig up bones in an excavation pit, and it says there's also going to be a VR experience, but I couldn't find out any details what that means. Interesting. For some reason, when you said you can climb into a dinosaur egg, I was imagining like an actual dinosaur-sized no, egg. No, no. I think it's human-sized <laughs> shape of an egg. Gotcha. Statue kind of thing, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, you could climb into a dinosaur egg, but it would be more like wearing dinosaur eggs as slippers. <laughs> would be sort of the, the scale they're on. <laughs> or, you know, if you had the macro elongatulithus, maybe you could like fit it over an arm. Mm. Maybe you could wear them like sleeves. <laughs> <laughs> Or maybe a pant if you're short enough. That'd be interesting. <laughs> yeah. No, not like that. <laughs> That's too bad. That would be kind of fun. <laughs> this next one's pretty cool. So in Riverdale, Utah in the US, there's a group of kids who started a neighborhood dino club. And it started when seven-year-old Savannah and her friends wanted to learn about dinosaurs. So their parents took out a book about dinosaurs, start talking about it, and the kids were apparently so interested, now they have a club, and they meet every Monday in the afternoon. <laughs> and the club's grown to 14 kids. Wow. Yeah, and it's a a pretty interactive club. They have a lesson and then an activity each time. Nice. Keep it up, hopefully. Yeah, sounds like a pretty cool club. And last in the news, we've got another dinosaur music video to talk about. This one is from Taurus. The song is called Hug from a Dinosaur. And it's this psychedelic video. There's a lot of neon sauropods and theropods. Also some neon birds. Interesting. Yeah. So if you're into that. <laughs> so if you're into that, <laughs> it's out there. Yeah. <laughs> and now we're going to go on to our interview with Nizar Ibrahim. But as always, we talked much more about dinosaurs than we have time for in this episode. So if you want to hear an extended cut of the interview with much more Spinosaurus and other dinosaur goodness, then head over to patreon.com slash I Dino and get it from your premium content feed if you're a patron. Or if you're not, consider signing up. So we're joined this week by Nizar Ibrahim. He's a paleontologist, anatomist, senior lecturer at the University of Portsmouth, assistant professor of biology at the University of Detroit Mercy, National Geographic Explorer, and we're most acquainted with his work because he does a ton of stuff with Spinosaurus. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> yeah, so we, we do have a lot of Spinosaurus questions because, um, you know, you're the expert. You're probably used <laughs> to that, I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That kind of comes with the job, yeah. Uh, but I did want to ask real quick, and I know we're not, we are not airing this on International Dinosaur Day, but we are talking to you on International Dinosaur Day, May 18th. Can you tell us, like, what, what exactly is International Dinosaur Day? What's the best way to celebrate a day like today? Good question. Go to your local museum if you can. Uh, museums <laughs> need a lot of support now. But, you know, there are actually a, a couple of different International Dinosaur Days. This is one of them, but people <laughs> came up with several because dinosaurs are so awesome. One is not enough. <laughs> I don't need to tell you that. But it's also, there's also a month-long celebration of all things dinosaurs. And that's the National Geographic Dinomania celebration. And so they decided to devote an entire month to dinosaurs. You know, we've got Shark Week, 
well, dinosaurs are even cooler than sharks, right? So we need an entire month to celebrate dinosaurs. <laughs> and so you can find out all about it on netgeokids.com slash dinomania. You can explore the many fantastic dinosaur books National Geographic Kids has published over the years. I worked on a couple of them, so I can highly recommend them. You can find dinosaur posters to print. You can enter a design a dino contest. And you can find out a lot more about the latest discoveries. And of course, if you're a parent or if you want to, you know, find out more about the most recent discoveries, you can also check out last year's cover story from the National Geographic magazine, which you can still access online, uh, National Geographic Reimagining Dinosaurs. If you type that into your browser, it's going to take you there. So those are some really good starting points for your Dinomania celebrations. Nice. And then I want to say just to our listeners, Dinomania, they've made it really fun play on words with Dino and then May, M-A-Y, because the month of May. That was a very clever, very, very (laughs) clever play on words. I think that person got a real big promotion. (laughs) It seems like that I guess dinosaurs have multiple months, too, because there's also Dinovember. Mm -hmm. So you got two months, multiple days. It's good. Yeah, like it's, it's kind of crazy. I wonder what the, the dinosaur would have made of all of this obsession. With <laughs> Weird little hairless monkeys I know. obsessing over them. <laughs> yeah. That's very true. In some cases, so tiny, they barely notice us anyway. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. I was I, That just reminded me. Last time we talked, I think you mentioned that there was maybe some movement on a museum popping up in Morocco as a result of all this interest in Spinosaurus? Has that progressed at all? Yeah, I, I don't know if popping up is the right mo- word, but it, it takes a little <laughs> longer to, to build the museum. But um, now we're making some progress. In fact, a small dinosaur exhibit hall has opened in uh, Azilal, uh, and they put a dinosaur skeleton on display there, uh, an Atlasaurus, a long-necked dinosaur, a really cool animal. So we have some momentum now. Of course, the big idea we have is to build a a giant national museum with, you know, collections facilities and research facilities and so on. But uh, we'll see. You know, we're getting there. Of course, the pandemic has kind of put everything on hold in many different ways. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But we're cautiously optimistic. Yeah, a lot has happened since we we last talked. We have some really, really exciting discoveries in the pipeline, not just related to Spinosaurus. So uh, 2021 and 2022 is going to be a really exciting time for my team. Awesome. What was the name of that museum that the display's at? So it's uh, in the city of Azilal. So that's A-Z-I-L-A-L. There are a couple of pictures online. You know, the opening happened during the pandemic. So it wasn't a, you know, it's kind of a low key (laughs) event. But it's, uh, you know, it looks pretty cool. And it's, they have several projects for kind of local museums or, you know, little exhibits to highlight discoveries in different parts of the country. Excellent. So, you know, I think, you know, it's, things are moving in the right direction. Gotta start somewhere. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. So uh, you were mentioning you had some cool, I don't know, what you'd say pre-discoveries. They're not Some things in the pipeline. Some things in the pipeline. Yeah. <laughs> Can you give us any hints? Sure, I can. I'll give you a tease. Um, but it's, you'll be so excited when you hear the, the, the tease, you, you definitely want to hear more. So I don't know if it's a good idea to, to go down we'll, that slippery slope, we'll take what but we here we get. go. Yeah. <laughs> so we have some new Spinosaurus related discoveries in the pipeline. We haven't described the entire skeleton yet. We have even more parts of the skeleton. So you'll find out more about that. We also found remains of really cool giant flying reptiles, pterosaurs from the Sahara. That's Ooh. a project I'm very excited about. And then we have another really cool dig site 
in in Africa, and um, I'm very excited about that one because it could be something really unique. But we'll have to wait. I, I, I you know we'll have to see when we can actually travel. And then finally, we have one really big dig site, and it's a really big discovery. In fact, it's so big you can see it from space. Wow. I don't know, like, is that without magnification from space? I told you you would want to hear more. <laughs> that was the tease. That was the tease, yeah. Was it found in the Suez Canal when they were, like, unearthing that that thing? How did you know? It was, no, no, it wasn't. Wow, that's a lot of things that going on. And this this is all stuff that you've been working on through the pandemic. Yeah, and those are the scientific discoveries We've got a number of other projects. I'm also working on an exhibit project at the moment, and I'm very excited about that exhibit project too. But, uh, you know, you'll find out more, you know, over the next few months. Cool. Is that, we had a listener question where they said there's an exhibit called Spinosaurus Lost Giant of the Cretaceous. Is that the one you're talking about? That exhibit, I designed that exhibit years ago. So it's kind of, I don't want to say old news, but it's, you know, it's, uh, that's an exhibit we worked on and designed years ago. Uh, it was really, it was a very cool exhibit, but we now just have some parts of the exhibit that are still, you know, kind of touring. But no, this is an entirely new exhibit. In fact, there's one big exhibit project and a smaller one, and they're both super exciting, super new, and uh, they feature some of the best representations we have of dinosaurs today. Awesome. Cool. Are, are those going to be touring exhibits or are those going to be fixed at one museum? Both. Uh, some parts of these exhibits will be touring. That's awesome. We like it when new dinosaur exhibits make it to our area, even <laughs> though they don't make it to the Bay Area in California that often, unfortunately. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, anything you can do, we appreciate yeah. Yeah. <laughs> No pressure. <laughs> So we, we also interviewed Dave Hone recently because him and Tom Holtz had their paper, which was a little bit... Different. Yeah. <laughs> it made some distinctions from your paper about how aquatic Spinosaurus was. And it seemed like one of the main things was they were talking about whether or not Spinosaurus could pursue prey in the water column versus being more like a stork and plucking out fish out of the water. Do you have any thoughts on you know, the different approaches and which way you think is more likely? Really? When, when was that published? I must have missed that one. Good one. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the uh, Hone and Holtz paper is a little tricky because in many ways, it's not really about reinterpreting the data much. And I think I, if, I, if I quote uh, Tom Holtz correctly, in one of the interviews, he said, oh, yeah, we agree that this was the most aquatic of all dinosaurs. And mm -hmm. it was more aquatic than a polar bear, which if you've ever seen a polar bear, is pretty aquatic, mm -hmm. but less aquatic than a, than a seal. And I'm like, yeah, that's pretty much what we said. Um, <laughs> so, so I think it's not really, you know, that they're saying, oh, it was not an aquatic animal. I think a lot of it is, is getting caught up in semantics when they say, oh, we don't know if it was a pursue predator. The thing is, you know, everything we know about spinosaurus tells us that this was a highly specialized water-loving dinosaur, you know, and they don't seem to disagree with any of that. The only difference is that they are suggesting that essentially it was more of a wading predator, right? Wading through shallow water and then, you know, swimming, you know, from one hunting ground to the next or, or whatever. And I think that there's really nothing that's 
consistent with this idea in the skeleton. And I should add that, you know, this is basically a, a, a review of, of previously published papers. So they have not looked at the actual fossils or, you know, uh, done any kind of quantitative analyses or anything like that. It's really basically, you know, different ideas. But there are a number of flaws, I think, with the wading Spinosaurus idea. One of them is that Spinosaurus has these highly reduced hind limbs, for example, right? That doesn't really make a lot of sense if you're a wading predator, right? If you look at, at wading predators today, if you look at some of these birds, you know, they, they have long legs, right? And I think in the paper, they're saying, well, you know, it was still a very big animal, so it could still wade through water. But of course, it wasn't born that big, right? <laughs> if you're a small spinosaurus, <laughs> the short legs will be a bit of a problem if you're wading, right? Yeah, that's true. And uh, the other thing is, if you've ever picked up a wading predator, they're incredibly light, right? If you pick up a, pick up a wading bird... Spinosaurus weighed over 10 tons, and you're walking on kind of soft sediment in a river system, right? An animal that weighs 10, 11, or 12 tons is not a very good wader for a number of different reasons. And then, of course, many of these other adaptations really don't seem to make all that much sense, you know? We know that some relatives of Spinosaurus had a pretty normal tail, very similar to other predatory dinosaurs, and so you could presumably, plausibly make an argument that these are you know, more likely to be wading animals, you know, wading through shallow water and so on. But with spinosaurus, you kind of go like, well, why the paddle-like tail and why the really dense bone? That's another reason that doesn't make sense if you're a wader. Mm-hmm. You have this super heavy bone that is a, a, an adaptation for buoyancy control in the water. And, um, you know, it, it, it just seems superfluous and unnecessary if all you're doing is wading through shallow water. And if, and if you're just sw- swimming to, to kind of get to another kind of hunting ground, you know, other dinosaurs could do that. You don't need a specialized paddle tail to do that, right? You don't need many of these other features. So it just seems like, you know, it's an idea that, that's thrown out there. And I think it's part of a more general pattern we've seen, not just with Spinosaurus, but with other dinosaur discoveries as well. Whatever you're kind of challenging long-held dogma, in this case, you know, the idea that essentially dinosaurs just didn't do water, there's always a certain kind of pushback, right? There's always some people saying, oh, I don't know about that. And, you know, maybe it was just standing in the shallows and so on. But everything we're finding out about Spinosaurus really points in another direction. It's it strongly suggests that this was an animal actively pursuing prey in the water. And as I said, I don't want to give too much away, but we have mm-hmm. uh, a couple of other really exciting discoveries in the pipeline. And in light of those discoveries, I can tell you the, you know, that that paper you mentioned is not going to age terribly well. And, and we also recently published a paper on Spinosaurus teeth, which are incredibly abundant in these uh, river environments in, in Morocco, mm-hmm. for example. In fact, only the, the sawfish or saw skate uh, rostral teeth are more abundant. And so this is not an animal that was just kind of hanging around the edge of this river system and every now and then a tooth gets into the river. This was an animal that really spent pretty much all of its time in this river system mm-hmm. and contributed a huge, humongous number of teeth uh, to the fossil record there. So without going into too many details, as I said, there are many different lines of evidence suggesting that, you know, this was a river monster actively pursuing prey in the water. Awesome. Yeah. There's one one point that I liked of theirs, which I was curious if you had a if you had thought about, which is the placement of the nostrils on the head. Do you think that because they're closer to the eye, the argument was, well, then they might have had the tip of their mouth down in the water and open? Because that's where it is on birds that do this kind of behavior, whereas animals like crocodiles and things that are underwater tend to have them at the tip of the snout. Do you have any ideas about that? I I wouldn't read too much into the the exact position of the nose opening. 
simply because Spinosaurus is not a bird and it's not a crocodile. So I think, you know, uh, sometimes we also have to understand that these animals come to unique solutions and there are all sorts of anatomical and evolutionary compromises that, that occur in, in, you know, in these animals. But the size and placement of, of the fleshy nostril in Spinosaurus is absolutely consistent with an animal that spent a huge am- of amount of time in the water. When you look at Baryonyx, for example, or, or Suchomimus, these other spinosaurs, you kind of see the beginning of that, right? You can see the, the nose opening being pushed further back. But then in spinosaurs, it's even further back and even smaller. There are not really many good reasons why that would occur in this animal. And if you see it, again, in the bigger picture, I don't think that there's really any doubt why that was happening. It's it's not something that you would expect to see just because an animal is, you know, wading through water. It's hmm. uh, the kind of adaptation you would see in an animal that's really a highly specialized aquatic animal. Yeah. I think it's really interesting that you have to work now to prove that Spinosaurus was very aquatic. And, and we're talking about like, because we think of dinosaurs as not aquatic, but then what was it the 1960s? We were all thinking sauropods were spending all their time underwater and there's probably <laughs> yeah, some... They're, co- they're going back, yeah. <laughs> but a different group. Well, yeah, it's really interesting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, and I think that that's part of the reason. I think that because we used to put many different groups of dinosaurs into the water, you know, not just sauropods, but also, you know, quote unquote, duckbill dinosaurs, right? I think that because we then found out that all these dinosaur groups were actually highly terrestrial animals, we now react with a a certain dose of of skepticism when we hear suggestions of of dinosaurs kind of returning to the water, essentially, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But then with Spinosaurus, I think, you know, at this point, the the evidence is is pretty overwhelming. And as I said, even this, this recent paper you mentioned doesn't really contradict that basic idea. You know, if when you're saying, well... It's more aquatic than a polar bear, but a little less than a seal. You're basically agreeing that it's a, a really aquatic animal. So I think that idea is no longer controversial. I think now it's really about, you know, what exactly was its hunting style and, and, and how much time did it really spend in deeper water and what have you. But those are questions we will be able to answer in the next you know, couple of years. And as I said, we have some super exciting papers in the pipeline. One of them is absolutely, it's, it's really going to surprise you and everybody. Um, <laughs> It's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm so close to telling you all about it. So I really have to stop. <laughs> I, I think this, this feels like uh, the pattern when we talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> you want to talk about it. If only there, we didn't have this record button pressed, we'd be right. hearing so many more details. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's going to be a very interesting time, you know, when it's always interesting for me to kind of follow some of the discussions in the paleo world and seeing what people are saying about, you know, recent papers and what have you. And of course, I already know I have this, this knowledge of what's coming next. And I'm like, oh, I can't wait. You know? <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be fun. And you'll definitely yeah. want to invite me back then. I know you'll have more questions. Oh, yes, <laughs> please do. And then tell us everything. <laughs> well, I'll have a new tease about the next project then, but yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure that'll be, that's just going to be our thing. Yeah, it's a never-ending cycle. It's good. We like that cycle. Yeah. Do you have anything else that you would like to share? I know you've only done like 20 interviews today, so <laughs> yeah. you probably have a whole lot that you'd like to talk about. Well, I think one of the things I'm, I'm really interested in today, just because I, I got to talk a lot about dinomania and this celebration of all things dinosaurs, is, you know, people ask me, what is it about dinosaurs? Why do dinosaurs have this enduring appeal? And you always hear things like, oh, it's because they're big or, you know, it's because they're extinct. 
But I think there's more to it, right? Because there are plenty of big animals that are extinct that are not nearly as popular as the dinosaurs, right? If you think of mammoths or big marine reptiles and so on. And it's not that they are extinct either. You know, if we found on some extraterrestrial, you know, if we found on dinosaurs on another planet, right? Like we never found dinosaur fossils. So instead, we, we find out that they're living on another planet. They would be just as popular, right? You know, even if they're not extinct, right? I mean, and so I, I'm, I'm really interested in what you guys think, because you guys have, you know, interviewed many, you know, dinosaur scientists and artists and, you know, enthusiasts and so on. What do you think really drives this passion? Oh, you're flipping the script on us. Yeah, I've got some. <laughs> well, now I have to stump you, so that's unfair. <laughs> <Yeah. there. laughs> well, fortunately, you asked a, a question that people have asked us before, so that makes it a lot easier. <laughs> I think the, yeah, I think a couple of obvious-ish ones. One of them is that there's so many different varieties of them, so they're sort of like Pokemon in a way, where it's like you know, there's like the big leaf-eating ones, and then you've got like the small predators that seem all quick, the and giant then giant carnivores. Yeah, then you've got the massive ones. So that's like one piece of it. Is is that is that your standard answer to that question? They're like Pokemon. <laughs> that's actually the first thing I think. I think that's why kids get so into them because it's, it's like an, a collection thing. It's not an infrequent answer Garrett yeah. gives. Okay, but the, carry on. The other thing. <laughs> I think the other main thing is you've got uh, just how huge they are. And people love megafauna just in general. Everybody's always always wants to know what the biggest thing is, what the longest thing is, what the heaviest thing is, all those superlatives like the most of something. And dinosaurs are so many of those most things. You've got the thing with like the most bite force and the most teeth and the most weight and the longest and the you know biggest and the most ferocious and all just, those things. Just the fact that they lived for so long. Yeah, like most successful is also one yeah. of them. Yeah, most I think, successful. I mean, you know, I mean, if you th talk about things like, so for example, the biggest bite force, um, you know, something like, you know, Megalodon uh, had a bigger, stronger bite force than T-Rex, for example, mm -hmm. right? Or if we're talking about weight, you know, a blue whale is heavier than, than any dinosaur we know of. Um, mm -hmm. So but those are in the water. <laughs> okay, that kind of disqualifies <laughs> them. Like, yeah. Um, so look who you're talking to, Gary. <laughs> I know <laughs> that was a very smart Touché. move. Um, we'll talk about that future interview again someday. Um, but it's you know I, I I think there's still something else, and I think it 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 also has to do with the the fact that they look so strange and so bizarre, you know, kind of alien looking. You know, mm -hmm. I think that's also a really big factor because there's nothing like a T-Rex alive today, right? It's true. I think that's also part of their appeal because a mammoth, you know, and, um, you know, I hope my mammal, uh, mammoth paleontologist colleagues will forgive me, but a mammoth basically just looks like a very hairy elephant, right? It's just, uh, <laughs> you know, so I, I get that they're interesting, but, you know, it's not a big leap of the imagination to figure out what they moved like, what, what, what they were like mm -hmm. when they're moving around and so on. But with something like, say, Spinosaurus, you know, it's a, it's a huge challenge. It really challenges our imagination and, you know, makes us think very hard about how these animals functioned and uh you know and i know it was just a water animal but it's it's still a really fascinating creature <laughs> yeah yeah i think you're right about that that difference because usually when we're trying to think of something similar the closest we get is a bird and then like you said it's it's still not really like a bird because you got to like 100x it mm -hmm. and then at that point you know it's not really similar anymore Part of the appeal, too, could be a little bit of the mystery. There's so much we don't know. Yeah. We don't know what we don't and, know. And I think that's something I mentioned in the in the radio interviews. You know, and I'm glad to see that we're kind of on the same page. We, we, you know, I think these all these factors are things I also mentioned today 
Um, I guess the only Did you thing, start with Pokemon? I too? was going to say there's just one thing I didn't mention. Um, <laughs> where Pokemon was not used, so that's something I will correct in, your next in future interviews. Yes, that's a, a gold nugget, really. That's um, um, but it never gets boring. You know what I mean? Whenever you think you figure dinosaurs out, a new discovery comes along and and uh, completely rewrites the story. You know, it, it's a really amazing story of science as well. It's all of these discoveries and. You know, just when you thought you figured it all out, a new fossil comes along and, you know, revolutionizes everything. And so I think that's also part of the appeal. So I think it's really many different factors. It's not just, oh, they're big and they're extinct. You know, there, there's more to it. Yeah, definitely. And of course, you know, our, our friends at, you know, Why Dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think they're exploring this, this question. One thing <laughs> that I think would be interesting would be to, to go to places where dinosaurs are not super popular, you know, uh, in large parts of Africa, for example, you know, people don't know about dinosaurs or, you know, they only have a very superficial understanding of what they are. And it would be really interesting to talk to some of those people and then tell them about dinosaurs and ask them, what is it that you think is, is amazing about these creatures? You know, because then you kind of take out the Hollywood factor, you know, these people haven't watched Jurassic Park or, you know, whatever, they haven't been to a big museum. And I had conversations like that with some of the local fossil hunters in the Sahara, for example, and I asked them, you know, what is that you find interesting about these animals? And, and there are many different questions. And it's, it's rarely the case that they say, oh, it's because they're big and extinct or, you know, hmm. or the fossil hunters in the Sahara never tell me, oh, because they're like Pokemon, you know, so <laughs> uh, different factors. Yeah, that's true. That was definitely an American like growing up in the US or Japan or something bias in my answer. <laughs> Just a tiny little bit. <laughs> <laughs> there is a new exhibit in Japan that's like Pokemon combined with dinosaurs where they show the fossils that inspired the Pokemon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I read about that exhibit and yeah, sounds like it was made for you. <laughs> <laughs> we did go to some Pokemon stores in Japan. They were pretty great. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> One last very quick question for our listeners. Where's the best place for people to find out more about you and your work? So, well, I mean, one easy way to do it is just to Google my name and uh, <laughs> and you can just Google my name and, and Nat Geo is going to take you to uh, lots of different articles and, you know, information on, on documentary films we worked on and so on. And you can find out more on the Nat Geo Kids website as well. If you go to natgeokids.com slash dinomania, I filmed an interview for, for Nat Geo Kids, just giving an overview of what dinomania is all about. Or you can just go to my website, which is just my name, you know, one word, dot net, I think. I should know that. You can find out about our recent, recent work and, and upcoming expeditions and what have you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us sure. and sharing all these updates. My yeah, pleasure. We look, look forward to the next one. Yeah, looking forward <laughs> to, uh, to talking to you guys in the not too distant future. I will tell you more <laughs> about our discoveries, including the really big one I just hinted at. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'll come equipped with a lot of Pokemon knowledge so I can actually talk to you guys. <laughs> so I can compare the different dinosaurs to your favorite Pokemon. And uh, then I think we're all set. Awesome. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Thanks again, Nizar. As always, that was a great discussion. But also, as always, we want to learn more about your work. So hopefully it gets published soon. And we can find out <laughs> about all these things you hinted about. Yep. Very true. <laughs> Hurry up already. <laughs> Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. 
your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Iguana Colossus, which was a request from LREX via our Patreon and Discord. So thanks. Iguana Colossus was an iguanodontian ornithopod that lived in the early Cretaceous in what is now Utah, found in the yellow cat member of the Cedar Mountain Formation. It looks a lot like Iguanodon. It's bipedal. It's got the hoof-like hands and the bulky body. It's also about the same size as Iguanodon, and it's herbivorous. It's estimated to be 29 and a half feet or 9 meters long. That's not a colossus. <laughs> I think that's even, isn't that smaller than Iguanodon? Oh, you said it's about the same size as Iguanodon? Yeah, it's about the same size. I feel like Iguana Colossus needs to be way bigger than Iguanodon to get that name. Uh, it's, it's still sizable. I'm disappointed. Anyway, it's estimated to weigh between one and four tons. Hmm. <laughs> Karen is not impressed. <laughs> it was found in 2005 by Donald DeBlieu near Green River, and teams led by the Utah Geological Survey excavated it. Iguana Colossus was described and named in 2010 by Andrew McDonald and others, and it was named in the same paper as Hippodraco, which we covered back in episode 322, if you want to listen to that one. The type species is Iguana Colossus fortis, and the full name means Mighty Iguana Colossus. And it refers to the iguana-like teeth of iguanodontians and its large size. In the paper, it's described as a, quote, somewhat ponderous beast with robust limbs. Interesting. Yeah. The holotype is UMNHVP 2025. It's a large partial skeleton that includes parts of the tail, most of the backbone, some ribs, hips, and shoulder. There weren't any legs or leg parts found. It's possible the legs were dragged off by a predator. It also includes parts of the skull, including part of the right jaw and two loose teeth. The teeth were compared to Camptosaurus and Dakotodon, and one tooth, which is the broader one with a shield-shaped crown, was thought to be a dentary, and the other, which was, quote, the more lozenge-shaped crown, <laughs> was thought to be a maxillary tooth. It's funny, something funny about describing a tooth in terms of something you would swallow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I definitely had to read that one twice. Like, oh, is that what I think it is? <laughs> lozenge. <laughs> so Iguanacolossus is distinguished by having a contact surface from the supraoccipital to the squamosal, so skull elements, that is, quote, sinuous in caudal view. So a very, very specific feature of one of the skull bones mm-hmm. is different than other iguanodontians. Yes. Compared to relatives that lived around the same time but in different areas, iguanacolossus seems to be more basal. So Europe and North America were joined at the time, but Iguanacolossus was more primitive, so the Iguanodons from American Europe probably didn't interact with each other. But Jim Kirkland said in a Salt Lake Tribune article, quote, it suggests the Appalachia Mountains were more like the Himalaya back then. 
It must have been a more formidable barrier than previously thought, end quote. Iguanacolossus was probably a few million years older than Hippodraco. It's one of the earliest known Cretaceous dinosaurs found in North America, and both Iguanacolossus and Hippodraco helped show diversity of iguanodonts in North America. Other dinosaurs that lived around the same time and place as Iguanacolossus included the sauropod, Mierasaurus, and theropods like Falcarius and Gemini Raptor. And now on to our fun fact, because I'm doing the fun fact this episode. Wow me. <laughs> it's about a new definition of what a senile dinosaur is. Okay. <laughs> Was there an old definition? I'll get into that. So first I want to mention this is from a paper by Justina Slowiak and others that was published in Scientific Reports called Dinosaur Senescence, a Hadrosauroid with Age-Related Diseases Brings a New Perspective of Quote-Unquote Old Dinosaurs. Age-Related Diseases. Mm-hmm. So senescence means biological aging. It's this gradual deterioration that happens with age. And in the paper, they said, quote, senile vertebrates are extremely rare in the fossil record, making their recognition difficult, end quote. Yeah, I could see how it'd be difficult to recognize a senile vertebrate. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So what they did was they studied the largest known hadrosauriform, Gobi hadros mongoliensis. It had signs that it had stopped growing, and it had an age-related pathology. It was primary calcium pyrophosphate deposition disease, CPPD, which is also known as pseudogout. Pseudogout. Yeah, it's painful arthritis. You've got stiffness, swelling, and decreased range of motion. Ugh, that sounds unpleasant. Yes. So we all know it's really hard to know a dinosaur's age, the exact age. Usually when we talk about ages, and sometimes we give age ranges in years, but usually it's, you know, this is a juvenile, this is a subadult, this is an adult, or you know, maybe this is a hatchling. Perinate. Yes. <laughs> And a lot of this is based on body size, bone microstructure, skeletal ossification. You know, juveniles have bones that are not yet fused. Subadults have a mix. Adults have fused bones. Adults also have close lags that shows that it wasn't growing much at the end. They also have proportionally smaller orbits, the eyes, larger number of teeth, and they're generally larger in size. According to the authors of the paper, Non-avian dinosaurs tend to have a mosaic of features, so it's hard to estimate ages. And in papers, sometimes dinosaurs are called fully grown, old adult, and senile, and that's been used interchangeably for really large individuals, but with ambiguous definitions. So that makes it harder to define when a dinosaur is senile, especially since really large individuals or ontogenetically old individuals haven't really been found. And that could be due to predators, taphonomy, diseases, and maybe just younger individuals dying at a higher rate. So this definition, I always think senile means like you're not remembering things, but that's not what they're, they don't mean that when they say senile, right? No, because I don't think we would ever be able to test when a dinosaur could remember things. Yeah, so what they just mean that it's like the oldest category of dinosaurs they call senile? Yeah, it's because sometimes, and I'll get into that in a little bit, you could have an individual dinosaur specimen that we think is old, but maybe it just became full grown, but still had a lot of life in it. Mm, okay. So it's like near life expectancy? Yes. 
past retirement age. <laughs> I guess. Well past retirement age. <laughs> There's no retiring when you're a dinosaur, though. That's true. So the Gobi hadros specimen that they looked at, it had a fragmentary femur, tibia, toes, nine caudal vertebrae, and other fragments. It was found in the Bayan Sharif Formation in Mongolia, and they compared this specimen to other Gobi hadros individuals that had already been described. There were signs that this individual was old, though the authors did talk about how these signs are not perfect when it comes to assessing a dinosaur's age, since there's a lot of exceptions. But they said, one, it had close lags, which was an indication it was older. It's known as this external fundamental system, or EFS. Yep. Two, it's also larger than other Gobi hadros specimens. And three, the femur and tibia had bone remodeling, which we've talked about with sauropods. So it was remodeling to be more dense, I assume. Mm -hmm. The team then found a lot of calcium deposits on the bones, which are the signs of CPPD. They found calcific concretions on the surface of joints. There were no post-traumatic changes in the affected bones, so they said it looked more like primary CPPD than osteoarthritis, which is when the cartilage cushioning the ends of the bones deteriorate. Yeah, that's a common one that people get to. Yeah, so because this specimen was probably old, it was probably caused by aging and not another factor like metabolic disease. So after looking at this Goehadros individual, they proposed a new definition of a senile dinosaur. That term still is confusing to me. (laughs) (laughs) So there's three parts to this definition. The first part is that the dinosaur stopped growing. They achieved their terminal size, as they put it. And you can tell that because of the external fundamental system, EFS, and closed transcortical channels. So EFS shows slow tissue deposition, and they said functional stoppage, or basically near stopping of growth. The transcortical channels on the surfaces of the humerus, tibia, and femur They provide blood supply and they help with bone elongation, the growth. So when they close, the animal stops growing. Mm. And together, these things show that the animal is skeletally mature, but not necessarily old. Gotcha. Could be a newly stopped growing adult. Mm -hmm. So then the second part is that the dinosaur has secondary remodeled weight-bearing bones which are formed by the replacement of existing bone. If it's a quadrupedal dinosaur, then you look for it in the femora and humeri. And then the third part is that the dinosaur has non-traumatic, non-contagious bone pathologies correlated with advanced age, such as primary CPPD. What was CPPD again? That's the pseudogout. Oh, (laughs) yikes. Yep, the painful arthritis, which is what this gobihydro specimen had. Gotcha. So this new definition helps classify dinosaurs that may have previously been thought to be senile, but instead, maybe they were still in their prime, but they just stopped growing. So it's almost like they're defining senile as fully grown, but now getting diseases. So they're like well past their prime. Exactly. In other words, they're getting these diseases that only you'd expect to find in like the very oldest dinosaurs. Yeah. I think it's another way of, because we often will talk about juveniles, juveniles, subadults, and adults, and then just kind of stops at adult. Mm -hmm. And we don't have this range for adults. 
Sometimes they extend it to skeletally mature adult, which would be like your second point where the bones are remodeled. That's like one past that. So it could be adult, skeletally mature adult. And then the last one would be senile. Yeah. Interesting. Well, they, they encourage future studies around this. And they're also saying that some features that are now thought to show a dinosaur senile may just be a normal adult skeleton that's, you know, something changed in their species and it happened after it was done growing. Yeah, it does seem like a hard line to draw because, you know, there are diseases that are more common in older animals, but younger animals get them too. So that's a tricky one to nail down. Mm -hmm. But I think this paper was meant to get us closer to some sort of standard definition. Gotcha. Must be useful for someone. People who are studying skeletally mature dinosaurs, maybe. Yeah. That's true. I was When I first read it, I couldn't off the top of my head think of papers we had read that used the word senile. <laughs> no. And it's still, I'm not entirely sure why it's important to distinguish between a skeletally mature individual and a senile skeletally mature individual. Maybe if you're looking for behavioral changes. Yeah, I suppose. I guess maybe in paleopathologies, mm -hmm. it could be useful because then you could be determining, well, is this a paleopathology in a regular adult, you know, like a newly adulted adult? Mm -hmm. <laughs> or is it a pathology that you just would expect to see and it's nothing out of the norm ordinary because it's already extra old? Yeah. But I was intrigued. There's not too many papers that discuss old dinosaurs. Yeah. And that wraps up this episode of Vino Dino. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear and you're not already subscribed, then subscribe to us in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And tell a friend if you have a friend that wants to hear more about dinosaurs. Thanks for listening, and until next time. Good day.